We like to study the Bible each week because we believe that it speaks to us with the authority and relevance of Jesus. So some of you are already convinced of that. Crack open your Bible. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. Some of you are still not sure. You're asking questions. Again, we're glad you're here. We want to help you to see that, that Jesus is alive in these pages. And so through our series in Philippians, we've been calling it Risk Everything because we see this pattern of a Jesus who gives up the perfection of heaven to come for us, to save us. And as we see that, then we see Paul giving up his past life to follow Jesus. And Paul says, hey, follow me as I follow Jesus. So we're called to risk everything, to give up everything we've held dear and to pursue Jesus, to see him as our ultimate treasure. This week, we're calling it Make a Stand. We're going to be in chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Make a stand. The key word is stand firm. And he used the same battle language that he uses here in verse 1. He used that already in Philippians 1, verse 27. He said to stand firm, to strive together in unity. He's calling us to that again. He's saying, make a stand. So a couple of weeks ago, we saw the Christian life as a race, right? We talked about it as this race. We're running after Jesus. And then last week, Lucas did a great job filling in while I was away. Thank you, Lucas, wherever you are. Got to hear the recording. He did a great job. I got to go to my son's college graduation, which was awesome. Um, and Lucas showed us that it's also walking a path. That's a common metaphor for the Christian life, right? Like walking a path. And he talked about walking the well-traveled path, following others who are following Jesus. This week in this progression from run to walk is stand, right? Stand your ground. So a famous story a lot of you might be familiar with is King Leonidas of the Spartans making a final stand against the Persian Empire. Xerxes and the great Persian Empire was sweeping across the ancient world. And Xerxes comes to Greece and the Spartan 300, and he says to King Leonidas, you are greatly outnumbered. There is no way that you will survive this. Surrender your weapons. And many of you know how Leonidas responded because you've got it as a Greek bumper sticker on the back of your truck, right? He said, Malone Labe, which in Greek means come and take them, right? And in the American Revolution, in the Texas Revolution, and a lot of other places that got turned into, you know, battle flags, come and take it, right? It's this idea of making a final stand, even if it means you're going to die in the process. And that's what happened to the Spartan 300, right? Kind of like the Alamo, they didn't win that battle, but their willingness to die for a greater cause became an example for others. And strategically, they slowed down the onslaught of the empire, right? And so the battle of of the Spartan 300, the battle of the Alamo, they didn't win, but they slowed down, and then their later compatriots won, right? Were able to hold off the enemies. There's a parallel in the Christian life. We don't, we don't always win all our battles, but we're called to make a stand. We're called to fight for the truth. We're called to stand up for what's right. But here's the thing, right? We're not swinging swords. We're not shooting guns. We're obeying Jesus, and we're proclaiming the good news of who he is. So the New Testament unapologetically uses this fighting language. Stand up and fight. Hold your ground. But it's hold your ground in faithfulness to Jesus. All right? We respect just war theory. We're thankful for soldiers. I know many of you are soldiers. We're thankful for what you do in your sphere, but that's a different sphere than what the church does, right? As a church, we will not convert people with tanks. We'll convert them by obeying Jesus and by proclaiming the truth of his word. 
That's what Paul's going to call us to. We're going to see that here. Chapter 4, he's going to say, in this way, make a stand. Fight, stand your ground in this way. Okay, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So he says, make a stand. He says, fight. But then he says, but fight this way. Uniquely gospel fighting uniquely trusting and obeying Jesus kind of fighting. So let me pray for us that God would help us to understand this because this is a hard thing to live out in this world. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that you have not left us without instruction, but you speak to us, you talk to us. Uh, We've got it bound together, written down, your words. Help us to hear you. God, I pray for those of us that are skeptical that you would give us open ears and open hearts. Lord, I pray for those of us that think we already know you well. Lord, continue to humble us. Continue to teach us and show us who you are and what you're doing in the world right now. We need you, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So he says, thank you. Amen. He says, stand your ground, right? Stand firm. Make a stand, but do it in this way. And kind of three clear little clumps here that he gives us. Verse 1 through 3, then verse 4 through 7, then verse 8 and 9. Um, three different little sections here. The first section, he's focusing on unity. So we're going to stand, but it's going to be unity. Christians, we have this problem of sometimes standing and, and fighting against one another. And he's like, no, we, we make a stand together in Jesus. Unity, make a stand in unity. And then the second section, he's going to say, make a stand in joy. Actually live out joy, rejoice in the Lord. And he's going to contrast that with anxiety. We're going to learn how, how to live that out because that's a process that he'll unfold for us. We should be joyful people. That's part of what it means to make a stand. And then finally, make a stand in beauty. He's going to say, think of these beautiful things. Obey the standards that I've laid before you. And that's going to look beautiful and true in the world. So make a stand for beauty. So three parts, standing in unity, in joy, and in beauty. First of all, we see that we should stand in unity. I already said this before. He's recalling something he said in chapter 1, verse 27. He said in chapter 1, verse 27, stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So there again, he he kind of tied together fighting language, striving language with unity, learning how to fight together. In verse 21, 27, he said, in the gospel here in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, in the Lord, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. The Lord is the foundation. That's what unites us, right? 
That's what makes us one. We have a lot of different opinions about a lot of different things. You guys have a lot of different preferences. We have a lot of different brands of Christianity, ways of following Jesus, but we're following Jesus. And he's the one that unites us and takes us in the same direction. Verse 2 through 3 says it this way, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So he's going to use a case study of people not being united and say they need to be united. They need to agree in the Lord. This phrase, agree in the Lord, is hearkening back to the like-mindedness, be of the same mind language that he used in chapter 2. Do you remember that where we were in chapter 2? said, have the same mind with each other that you have of Jesus, right? So he keeps bringing us back to Jesus. We can't, we can't actually live out what Jesus has called us to without looking to Jesus and saying, oh, Jesus gave himself for me. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Because Jesus died for me, because Jesus saved me, now I will follow him. So we see this beautiful pattern here that Paul unfolds where he says, I love you. Verse 1, my brothers, I love you. I long for you. You're my joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And then he gives the particulars of like, hey, Euodia, Syntyche, y'all need to get along. Then he starts making correction. This is a beautiful pattern we see again and again throughout the scriptures, a law gospel pattern where the gospel comes first. God's initiating love for us always comes first, and then we respond in obedience. Many of us get caught up in religion in such a thing where we we start to think like, I've got to obey, and then God will love me. Obedience is, is important, and we will not compromise in obedience, but it flows out of Jesus loving us first, right? Think of the most obedience-based passage in the entire Bible. I would argue that that's the Ten Commandments, Right? where God's like, this is the stuff, do this, right? Go back and look at chapter 20 on your own time of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments are unfolded, and he starts with, I'm the God that saved you. I'm the God that saved you out of your slavery. Now, obey me. Paul's following a similar pattern. He says, I love you. You belong to the Lord. You're my family. Now obey. Okay, so he says specifically, Yodia and Syntyche, I entreat to agree in the Lord. The word entreat is kind of like I plead, I'm begging you, I'm begging you to get along, I'm pleading with you, with you to get along. And scholars that know a lot more about Greek than me says that Paul's very careful to not take sides, even in his language. Paul lays out language where commonly in Greek you would say, I entreat you and you to get along. That would be the normal standard grammatical way of saying it. And Paul does a special thing here where he repeats himself to make sure nobody thinks he's taking sides. I'm entreating you, Odia, and I'm entreating you, Syntyche. I'm talking to both of you. I'm not taking sides. That's a Christian principle of unity, right? We need to be careful not to take sides. Of course, we take sides when someone's like, we should disobey God, or we should not believe in Jesus. Right. We take sides then. We're saying, no, you should obey Jesus. You should believe in Jesus. But in a lot of things, there's secondary issues, and we need to avoid taking sides when we don't need to take sides as much as possible. That doesn't mean we don't admit we have opinions. Like, we can talk about our opinions. We have opinions. We disagree about things. We can talk about that. In theological issues, I like to really press the, the main things, trusting in Jesus, obeying him, following him, and then make the secondary things secondary. You might hear that in my preaching a lot. You'll hear me explain. This is the theological view I have, but it's secondary to this greater importance of we can trust this book. We call it the Bible. We're sinners that need a Savior, Jesus, and then we need to obey him with our lives. So there are basics, fundamental things that we agree on, and then we kind of disagree on secondary things, but we don't divide over those. He says, I entreat 
Syntyche, Euodia, to agree in the Lord. Verse 3, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Your names are in the book of life. He's like, okay, third party, help them out. That's another Christian principle, so we don't take sides. But then he says, help them out. He says, go ahead and you, my true companion, and Clement, and other people who have worked together, let's, let's help them get together. So this is laid out in Matthew 18, when you have a division, you talk directly to the person you have problems with, right? If your brother sins against you, you go and talk to them personally, you don't talk about them. So when you don't talk to them personally, we have this thing that the New Testament forbids called gossip. Anybody ever heard that word before? Gossip, right? That's where we say, instead of, I have a problem with you, we go to our friends and say, I have a problem with them, right? That's gossip, and we're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to talk directly to them. And then next step is bring in a third party. He's like, okay, they haven't been able to get along, bring in a third party. But there are kind of some key concepts here of unity. Don't take sides. Don't gossip about each other. Talk directly, then bring in the third party to help each other out. Even when you bring in the third party, you don't say, well, I talked to them. And now I'm going to talk trash with you about them because that's bringing, that's not how you bring in the third party, right? You get them and then you go and you talk together because you're trying to work things out. So there's a very relational, personal way that we are to handle conflict and, and disagreements in the scripture. Another thing that, that Paul is highlighting here is he keeps talking about laboring and working together. Do you see that in the text? Um, he talks about it here, verse three. Those who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, right? We already have a history. We've labored together. And then he says, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So there's this kind of missional working together kind of unity that we see in the scriptures. I think that goes a long way in helping us to actually be united. When we just talk philosophically about things, it's real easy to just devolve into well, my favorite view about this is this, you know, and my favorite system is this system, and I agree about this, and I like that, but you're stupid. And we kind of divide up just talking theoretically about things. What if we actually worked together to love our neighbors, to proclaim Jesus, to impact our community for the sake of the glory of God? Like, as we labor together, there's a a missional binding together that happens. That actually unites us. Here's a really important application I want to throw out to you. One of the best ways that we can practically be more united is to either use social media very sparingly or not at all. That would be my advice to you. Um, I got off for 40 days. My my daughter gave me some snaps for that one. I got off for 40 days during the Lent season. I was like, "This, this is glorious. This is great. This is like the old world where we talked to people face to face. I remember those days. Remember those days? You could talk to a person in person, or you could call them on the phone. And that was pretty much it, right? And, and so just know that the artificial intelligence, the robot, Skynet, the way it works, it actually is designed to get our attention, to get us roiled up about things. So social media is designed to divide us. That's how it works. That's how they make their money, is getting you all worked up about stuff. So just know that that's at work every time you jump on. So if you're going to jump on, do it responsibly, right? <laughs> Be careful about it. Um, and so that, that's a real good practical way to avoid that. And the opposite of that is working on real things in the real world side by side, being co-laborers that actually work together to proclaim Jesus and to serve our neighbors, to be co-laborers, fellow workers. And then finally, as this phrase, whose names are in the book of life. I mean, that's the bottom line. That's what unites us as Christians. We belong to Jesus. 
We're brothers and sisters adopted in the family of God. We have different preferences. We have different gifts. We have different cultures. We come from different schools and neighborhoods and ethnicities. And what unites us is Jesus. We believe we're sinners that needed him to save us. And trusting in him places us in his book of life. We belong to him because we've trusted him. By faith, he saves us. Another place that this whole book of life concept is used is in the Gospels, where Jesus sends out his, his disciples to go minister to others. I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but he sends them out two by two, and they're ministering, and they come back, and they're all excited about it. They're like, Jesus, we healed people in your name. We, we cast out demons in your name. This is so great. Even the, even the evil spirits were obeying us, and they're all excited about the ministry they'd accomplished. And Jesus is like, be careful. I saw Satan fall like lightning. It's like, watch out for pride. And then he says specifically, you should be more happy that your names are in my book. You should be more happy that, that you belong to me, less happy about all that you've accomplished. So as a church, you know, we're ministering to a community. We're excited when people meet Christ, when people grow in their faith, and when marriages are healed. We celebrate these things. We want to celebrate them. They're good. And Jesus is saying, be more happy that you're in my family. Be more excited that you belong to me. That's ultimately what unites us. Um, so I think one of the common problems we have is confusing big things, right? Jesus, the gospel, uh, the morality that God calls us to in the gospel, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. We mix that up with secondary things. Our strategy of reaching the city, our favorite pastor, our favorite school of theology, you know, whatever it is. We divide up over secondary preferences and we mix those things up. So we want to continue to to drill on what the basics are and be united in those basics. But I think it goes even deeper, not just intellectual basics of the truth. This truth is more important than that truth, right? But it goes to a heart issue. We often want to justify ourselves, right? We want to say, no, look, look at my idea is better than your idea. And we want to fight over it. But if, if we're not justifying ourselves, like if Jesus justified my, me, I, I don't have to fight for me anymore. Do you see that? So this standing firm is not standing firm for my tribe, my team. Standing firm is Jesus is my only hope. I'm standing firm in the gospel. Jesus has justified me. Jesus has made me right with God instead of my preference or my tribe or or what I belong to. The flesh says, I must justify myself and prove that I'm right. When you find your, your little voices in your head saying that, you've fallen into the flesh You're not walking by the Spirit. I must justify myself and prove that I'm right. But if you've been justified in Jesus, if Jesus has made you right with God, then the Spirit says, I already know I'm a sinner, but I'm justified by Christ. So I'll get along with other people. So I'll unite with others who are also justified by Christ. There's a German philosopher, Schopenhauer, who described human beings as porcupines. Okay, It's a little depressing, but hang with me here. Uh, Schopenhauer says it this way. He says, we're like a bunch of porcupines trying to hold, uh, huddle together in the cold. He says, the colder it gets outside, the more we huddle together for warmth. But the closer we get to one another, the more we hurt one another with our sharp quills. And in the lonely night of Earth's winter, eventually we begin to drift apart and wander out on our own and freeze to death in our loneliness. Thank you. That's depressing, isn't it? Here's the gospel. The gospel acknowledges... Yeah, we're porcupines. Yeah, we hurt each other. But Jesus came into our world and he, he like absorbed all the quills, right? By dying on the cross for us, he, he took all 
of the wrath of God. He took our pain, our jabs, our barbs. And so we're able then to say, wait, Jesus, Jesus took my place. So I don't have to defend myself anymore. So I don't have to wander out in the cold and die alone. I can now huddle with other human beings who will hurt me, right? Something I say at every wedding. This is my, my cheery charge I give at every wedding. Even though you love each other, you're going to hurt each other, right? Don't raise your hands if you're married. I know, I know it's true. Don't embarrass your spouse, right? That's just a human being thing. We're going to hurt each other. But the reality that Jesus forgave us enables us to forgive each other, enables us to move forward in unity. So here's another way of saying this. We're not united because our brother does everything right. That's not what actually unites us. What unites us is that we're failures that are trusting in Jesus. That puts us in the same family, puts us on the same team. So here's some practical things you can do. I talked about social media already, right? Throw it away or be careful. Um, second one is drill on the gospel. Do you know the gospel? Have you memorized the Roman road? Have you memorized some verses that, that put it into context and say, this is who Jesus is. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 6.23. There's a whole uh, flow of verses you can memorize. They call the Roman road, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 10.9. It just helps you to just have it ready. You know the gospel. You know the story of Jesus. Then also, I would say we need to drill on the morality of the Bible. So the summary in the Old Testament is the Ten Commandments. The New Testament is basically an unpacking of that morality under the lordship of Jesus. But it's the same morality, Old and New Testament. Culture has changed. We're we're no longer a a nation-state Israel. We're now a multinational, multi-ethnic tribe of followers of Christ. So there are specifics that have changed between Old and New Testament, but the morality is the same. You need to know that. Because more and more, we're in a time and culture where our culture says that morality is, is not just old-fashioned, but disgusting. And so there's a constant pressure on us to say, yeah, everybody thinks it's stupid, so I don't know if I want to follow this morality anymore. We need to drill on understanding that God has given us these boundaries because he loves us. He said, live this way because I love you and I want your joy. And I understand it better than you do because I built you, right? So we need to drill on it, understand it mentally, read the book, but, but also actually practice it. Like as we obey Jesus in new areas, we don't always fully understand it, but because Jesus died for us, he's won our trust. So we say, Jesus died for me, so even though my culture tells me this morality is ridiculous, I'm still going to obey him because Jesus died for me. So I trust him and I'm going to follow him. And then finally, serve others. That is such a practical way to be united. Serve others. Going back to this labor, fellow workers, right? As we serve together and serve each other, we're going to take less social media pot shots at each other from a distance, and we'll be more functionally practicing real unity. Jesus says, if you want to have any kind of influence, then you you need to serve, right? He gave this kind of last image of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. He says, I'm going to wash your feet. That's the last thing I'm going to do before I die on the cross for you. So he gives us these pictures of serving others. Okay, the the next point is standing by joy. We're called to stand by joy. um, And this can be hard for those of you that are naturally non-joyful people, okay? And I just want to confess, I've struggled with that over the years. My, My normal personality, like... I'm probably the loudest that you would see me all week right now, right? I've got a microphone on. I'm excited about preaching the scriptures. I'm going to be loud. 
uh, semi-joyful, and it's going to come across like that's not a struggle for me. But in my daily life, I, I tend to struggle with being joyful. What I want you to know is if you're like me and you struggle with joy, Paul lays out a prescription here. He gives us a path to joy. So part of this standing in the Lord is to be joyful, but you're not like automatically disqualified if you're gloomy, okay? I just want to pull you in, gloomy people. I know at least half of you are there. You can do this. Okay, verse 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Okay, so he commands it twice. Have you ever heard if you're studying something in the Bible and it's repeated? That means it's important, right? And Paul's even like uh, self-reflective about it. Like he, just, he doesn't just say rejoice, rejoice. He says rejoice. Okay, I'm going to say it twice. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. How often are we to rejoice in the Lord? Did anybody catch that detail? Always. Again, okay, so we're all disqualified. Even the cheerful people don't rejoice in the Lord all the time. And then he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. And I it says gentleness. Um, this word is kind of a, like holding yourself back, right? So this is like a really strong person who's restraining themselves. It's like let people see that you're not attacking and fighting for yourself and going after others, but you're restraining yourself. Let your reasonableness, your, your gentleness, your holding back be known to everybody, okay? Pagans are going to notice that you're holding back. You're showing some restraint, some self-control. And then he says, the Lord is at hand. This is really important. See, it's going to be hard to hold yourself back if you think you're on your own. If you think an or- you're an orphan that that has no spiritual father, that's not protecting you then, you, then you have to fight and scrap for everything. But if you know that you're adopted by God, that he loves you, that he's given himself for you, then, then you're going to be able to show some restraint, some gentleness, some reasonableness can be known then to everyone. You can, you can hold back a little bit. The Lord is at hand. And then he says, do not be anxious about anything. Don't worry about anything. Bob Marley says it this way, don't worry about a thing because every little thing is going to be all right, okay? I don't agree with all of Bob Marley's theology, but I love that chorus, right? Um, that used to be our cleanup song when I, when I worked at a teen club years ago. Um, don't worry about a thing. Every little thing is going to be all right. He says, don't be anxious about anything. But again, he doesn't just stop there. And a little technicality that you need to understand is in the Greek, when you see a present tense word, it means don't keep doing this thing, Right? Um, present tense is an ongoing aspect. That's just a grammatical quirk of Greek. So anytime you see present tense in the New Testament, it has this ongoing accent. It's, it's like an aspect. It's an ongoing thing. Continuous is what it's called. So what he's saying here is, is not like, don't be anxious or worry, and if you do, boom, you're in hell, right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't stay in the worry. Don't continue in the anxiousness. Do you see that? That's an important distinction for us, because here's the thing. Those of us that are worriers, we, got, we get caught in the cycle. Like, I'm worrying. Oh, no, I'm not supposed to worry. Now I'm worrying about how much God hates me, because I'm worrying, and he told me not to, right? And you just kind of get caught in this endless cycle, and you can't get off of that treadmill. So he says, don't be anxious about anything, but he gives you a process. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is an ongoing process. It's not a once-for-all binary thing where they're like the good people that never worry, and then there are the bad people over there that worry, and God hates them. No, we all will worry. Even the most joyful people in the room, you're going to be not joyful. 
You're going to be anxious. You're going to struggle. And what are you supposed to do when that happens? You're supposed to pray. You're supposed to call out to the Lord. The best example of this is in the Psalms. This beautiful picture of, Lord, how long? Where are you, Lord? When are you going to rescue me? How's this going to work out? God, I don't understand. We take those worrisome emotions. We take them to God. This is the process that he's given us so that we can rejoice and remember that he's at hand, start talking to him, take our anxiousness, turn it over to him. First Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you, right? Remember the gospel. Okay, Jesus died for me. He's got this. I don't have to worry about a thing because every little thing's going to be all right. It may take 75 years for it to be all right, but someday I'm going to be totally face-to-face with Jesus. He's going to wipe away every tear and everything's going to be perfect. I trust that that is true because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So I'm able to endure the difficulty of the here and now and continue to give my worrying back to him. Um, Dr. Stanley Jones says, every, uh, says, worry and anxiety are like sand in the machinery of life, while a faith that produces joy is like oil. Uh, yesterday, I was working on our bicycles, and I'm not mechanically inclined. I'm not good at that kind of thing. I always have to ask those of you guys in the church that are, that are good at that kind of thing for help. Um, but I've worked on bikes, you know. I've had bikes for, you know, my whole life. So here's a picture of someone putting oil on a bike. And that's in, in contrast to putting sand on the chain of your bike, right? Which do you think is going to work better? Let's just take a vote. How many of you think if you're having bike problems, pouring sand on the chain would help it? Raise your hand. Okay, nobody. You've got a smart crowd, mechanically inclined crowd here, right? Actually, the better way is to use oil or silicone or whatever, you know. And so what Stanley Jones is saying is that that's kind of like what worry does, Worry is actually like pouring sand on our gears. It doesn't help anything. Again, this is not condemnation like, okay, God hates you, it's over. No, it's like, stop pouring the sand on the gears, reach for the oil and start using the oil. And the oil is rejoicing in the Lord and praying to him. If you don't feel the joy, say, Lord, I'm not feeling the joy. Help me. Help me to see that you're present, that you're with me, that you're going to make things okay. I trust you, but I need you. I'm struggling. Um, Here's an example prayer that I wrote, God, I'm freaking out about this. Will you take this worry from me? Will you help me solve the problem or trust someone else to do it? Will you give me the wisdom to do what I can and the grace to rest in you when I'm out of answers? We just talk to him honestly about what we're struggling with. We pray, and that's like pouring oil on the gears. That's going to help us to rejoice Now, one other thing I want to share now that I've kind of shared the process with you. A lot of times as Christians, we teach the the huge distinction between happiness and joy. Have you ever heard that? Like happiness is this thing and joy is the super spiritual thing. Have you heard that before? That's kind of true, (laughs) right? That's kind of true, but I I just want to press you on this. What God is calling you to, to here is to actually be happy. That's actually what God is commanding. God's commanding you to be happy in Jesus. Now, when we distinguish happiness from joy, what we're saying is it's okay to cry. It's okay to grieve, right? So in our culture, we tend to use happy for kind of surfacey, temporary joy. And joy is like the deeper, more abiding reality. So that distinction, I would say, is fair. It's true. But no, God, God is calling you to be happy. One of the ways 
that we can stand firm in the gospel is to actually be happy that God loves us. To actually be happy that he saved us. And tomorrow when I stub my toe, I'm going to cry, right? And next week if I get cancer, I'm going to cry and I'm going to pray and ask God to heal it. But I'm going to then come back to him and say, okay, but God, you know best. And I'm going I'm to trust you. And I'm going to rejoice in you, what you're doing now, what you're going to do in the future. And so that process comes through as, as we express to God our needs, our desires. He, he says it in the verse, our prayer, our supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So again, those of you that struggle with worry a lot, you might sh- overshift to thinking, oh, I'm not supposed to worry. I need to just not say anything about it, right? No, but actually the cure is expressing it to God. That's the cure, right? I've got this problem. Worry is going in circles in your own head about it. Prayer is saying it out loud to God. See that? We think he's calling us to a stoic non-worrying where we just you know, float through life and nothing touches us. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, express your needs to me. Tell me your problems. Talk to me about it. So start praying your emotions, your pain, your worry. Start sharing those things with God. Start talking to him about who you are and what you're struggling with and what your pain is. Start being real in your prayer life. Um, one thing that's really helped me is, is journaling prayers over the years. Uh, and so that's a good way to do it, writing them down. Sometimes it helps you to concentrate. Sometimes people type them out, just expressing your heart to God. Um, sometimes people don't, you know, they're afraid someone will see what you're worried about. So you could, you could write them down and then burn it or something. You know, like there are ways to avoid, you know, whatever your worry is, but you need to build practices of expressing those things to the Lord, of talking to him about your pain, reading the scripture, expressing it in your own words, praying your feelings. Uh, some of you also need medical help, right? Some of you may have some chemical proclivities to worry more than the average person. Um, I think I'm built a little on the gloomy side. You know, I think I'm a little gloomy of center, just the way I'm wired. Recognize that, kind of uh, tend a little towards depression. In my own life, just kind of maintaining basic health has helped a lot. I haven't had to get uh, medical help to overcome that, but I have to be careful. Like if I go a long time without sleep, you know, feels like the world is ending. But, you know, like there's just things I've learned about myself. Now, even just saying that, I know that's hard for some of you to hear because I know soldiers more than almost any other vocation have sleep disorders, right? So I want to recognize, man, I, I understand you might be struggling with sleep. You need to go to a doctor. You need to get medical help, right? There are things that can help you, but that's not the entire solution, right? So, so get the chemical help you need. See a biblical counselor. See a doctor. Get the help you need for your overall health, but don't miss this prescription, right? Do you see what I'm saying? Like, it's good to help yourself physically, but, but do this, where he's saying, tell me what you're struggling with. You've got to keep talking to God about it. You have to pray. Don't give up on that. Don't think, oh, I've got this medical problem, so I'll get a medical solution, and that's it. No, that just might give you enough clarity of thought to be able to pray and be able to tell him, God, I'm struggling. I need you. So, so those things can work in concert. Um, those of you that struggle specifically with post-traumatic stress, a friend of ours that we sent out to plant the church, one of our interns is one of the pastors at our, our new church plant that we planted a couple of years ago in Harker Heights. And he's a part of a ministry called Mighty Oaks. They do a great job helping soldiers deal with combat trauma. And I want to highly recommend that to you. That's a great avenue to begin kind of unfolding some of that chronic anxiety and to begin rejoicing 
in the Lord and learning to pray and talk to him. That's a great resource. Another great resource is Celebrate Recovery. We've talked about that. That's a structured way of doing discipleship, of learning to follow Jesus, where you, you work out your hurts and habits and hang-ups together with other people. Learn to follow Jesus together. Again, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. So we rejoice as we say, Jesus, I need you. I'm worrying. Help me rejoice in you, Jesus. All right, the last point is that we would stand for beauty. This is verses 8 and 9. We'll wrap up with this last couple of verses. Um, and verse 8 and 9, we have a couple of structural things, again, that I want to point out. Um, in, in kind of modern education circles, there's this catchphrase that we like to throw around sometimes if we're interested in high culture and classical education. And it's this phrase you might have heard before. It's the good, the true, and the beautiful. Anybody ever heard that phrase, just that trio? the good, the true, and the beautiful. So people that are into ancient books and classical learning, classical culture, like to use that. And that's kind of like a code word for that classical culture, for beautiful things, the good, the true, and the beautiful. And you may not recognize that phrase, but there's another phrase that I would share that are three words also that you're probably more familiar with as Bible people, and that's faith, hope, and love. Have you heard that trio before? Faith, hope, and love, you're like, oh yeah, that's a Bible thing. I know that. And so in this text, we have this same kind of difference. Paul's actually using a classical culture phrase, more like the good, the true, and the beautiful, whereas he's normally saying faith, hope, and love. You know, he's normally calling us to these familiar words of grace and hope and faith. Here, he's going to use kind of particularly Greek pagan culture terms, and he's building a bridge. He's saying basically the good things in culture, you need to connect with those things in a way that honors Jesus. So let me read the text, verse 8 through 9. He says it this way. Um, Starting in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, uh, and I also have to point this out, he's going to keep repeating whatever. That's not how he normally talks. He's kind of talking in kind of high culture way here and kind of fancy rhetoric. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So he's saying, focus on the good and the beautiful and the true, the honorable. But again, the weird thing is he's doing it in a kind of pagan way. And so what he's saying here is there are things in the world that we're going to agree with, even as we might disagree with the underlying worldview. So when your pagan neighbor says something true and beautiful, celebrate it. Say, that's good. That's beautiful. I agree with that. Now can we talk about Jesus, right? Like there are things you agree with and there are things you don't agree with. We see this lived out really well in Paul. In Acts chapter 17, Paul is just quoting Cleanthes and Epimenides and these pagan Greek poets. And he's like, your own poets have said, right? Like they said this and they said that and we agree with that. But there's this other thing you need to know about. The true judge of the universe is Jesus Christ. He's the one that rose from the dead and he's the one that's gonna judge you in the end. And you can fight him or you can trust him. And so Paul's going to say, we agree with the good, true, and beautiful of our pagan culture, but we disagree with it on some of these other things. And so we need to learn this process of lifting up what's good, but disagreeing with it when necessary. There are two extremes that we fall into uh, in our stance towards culture. There's actually probably like 17, right? But here are the two extremes. One extreme is we just agree with everything that culture pumps out to us. That's pretty clearly a mistake, right? Culture's just wrong. People are just wrong. We need to obey Jesus. This is our authority, the scripture, the word of God. We're going to obey what God says to us. 
But there's another extreme we can go to because we see this. Like we see our friends kind of abandoning Jesus and following the world. And we're like, oh, we need to run to this side where we're terrified of anything that's not explicitly Christian. I think what Paul is calling us to is this middle ground where we're like, I'm not afraid. Jesus is my Lord. I can read this pagan thing and go, yeah, I agree with point A and B, and I disagree with C, D, E, and F. You know, and we can discern. So missionaries have to do this all the time. When a missionary goes into a new culture, they're like, okay, I might dress like them, and I might listen to their music. But you know what? I'm not going to sacrifice my children on this fiery altar. You know, like, they're, they're just things you say, that's, that's not wrong, or that's wrong. I'm not going to do that. But this is good, and I can hold this up and say this is a beautiful thing in their culture. We have to always be doing that work, um, holding up the good, the true, and the beautiful. And then here's the thing that Paul does to put healthy parameters around it. He says, follow me. Again, Paul says, obey Jesus by seeing the example I set before you. Look at verse 9. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Again, he's putting this parameter of obey me. This is what I was saying earlier about the kind of historic Christian teaching on morality and what is right and what is wrong, remaining pure, remaining devoted to the Lord, seeing him as our authority. That's our bottom line. Like we're going to keep following what he tells us to do while we interact with culture and say, oh, this thing is beautiful. This thing is good. And so two kind of ongoing commands that we're living under the great commission Jesus gives when he leaves his disciples. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he says, make disciples of all nations, baptize them, teach them to obey everything I've commanded them, go into all the world. He gives these clear, proclaim the truth of who I am instructions. But there's this other command that God gave us way back in Genesis 1 and 2, where he says, be fruitful and multiply, right? Have dominion, make culture, we would say. So we've got to live in this world, right? We have to plant trees, build businesses, make art, write songs. We have to build culture. And as we do that, we're going to interact with other people and we're going to commend the true and the beautiful, but we're going to discern and say, no, but I've got to bring it all under the lordship of Christ. And those two things work together. I think uh, this is a beautiful picture of this. Henry Matisse was a painter. Some of you might have heard of Matisse, pretty famous French painter, and Renoir, Auguste Renoir, both pretty famous painters. Matisse was quite a bit younger than Renoir, and so he kind of watched Renoir decay and get older and die. During the last decade of his life, Renoir had really bad rheumatoid arthritis and couldn't unclench his hands anymore. You know, his hands were just kind of bound up, and he just couldn't really open them any longer. And so Renoir's uh, son would, like, push a paintbrush into his hand so that Renoir could keep painting until he died. So one of the most famous painters in the world, that's actually a picture of him, you know, it was just hunched over a painting and kept painting until he died, even when he couldn't open his hand to pick up a paintbrush anymore. I think this is a beautiful example of continuing to make beauty and stand for beauty in a world of pain and death and decay. And Matisse asked Renoir about this. He would check on him, and one day he saw him painting, and he was like, August, why do you continue to paint when you're in such agony? And Renoir said, the beauty remains, the pain passes. The beauty remains, the pain passes. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, all right, everybody go get paintbrushes for the Lord. You know, like some of you are called to paint, but very few of you. Um, 
some of you are called to, to make high culture. Like I've got creatives in my family, so we talk about this stuff a lot. Some of you are called to make music and, and literature and, and this kind of stuff. I'm not saying all Christians should run out and become artists. I'm saying we should celebrate the good and the true and the beautiful and think on these things. And we should live lives that are inspiring to other people. The beauty remains with the pain passes. In the world of apologetics, there's a lot of apologetics, which is giving reasons for the faith, which is very intellectual, where we study the reasons. We're like, this is why I can rely on the Bible. This is why Jesus makes sense, right? And we work through those reasons. It's very intellectual. But a lot of apologists talk about this thing that we call the apologetic of beauty. And what that is, is it's like, man, I didn't really debate my neighbor into this, but they saw how we love our family. They saw the beauty in that. Or they saw this this beautiful thing that we created under the lordship of Christ, and they were attracted by this beauty. Christians need to be those kind of people where we make beautiful things. And, And Paul beautifully hinges this high, like, whatever is true, whatever is commendable, you know, this high culture-y kind of stuff with obey Jesus, right? He puts those two things together. Those are not counter to each other, but they, they go together. Celebrate beautiful things. Be joyful people. Love your neighbors. Embrace them. See that they're made in the image of God. Celebrate that God loves them and created them. God created the world and he loves it. He made us in his image. Francis Schaeffer said, We're beautiful ruins. We're beautiful ruins. No, it's glorious. He says glorious ruins. Beautiful would fit my point better, right? He says we're glorious ruins. But same idea. Beautiful. There's something beautiful that that shows the fingerprints of God in us and in creation. And there's something where we're all like, but this is broken. There's disease. There's death. There's sin, right? It's like if you walk into a junkyard, you see an old Mustang, you're like, man, that's glorious, even though it's rusty. And there might be like a rat running through the back seat, right? You can still see the glory and the beauty in it. That's, that's what we're called to. We're called to say, well, maybe not the rat. We're called, to, we're called to see each other and say, man, God made you. And God loves you, right? So in 1 John 2.15, where it says, don't love the world, it's talking in context in 1 John 2.15 of the, the sinful system, of a system in rebellion against God. Don't love the system of rebellion. I love the people God's put around us. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. So we have, to, we have to always live out that balance. I don't love the sinful system of this world, but I love the world. I love the people that God has made. God has called us to love each other well. We're to love the people of the world and the creation around us, but not the corrupt sinful systems. We're bringing all things under the lordship of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9.22, Paul says, I've become all things to all men so that by all means I may win some. That's the biggest challenge to those that say, no, I'm just going to separate and be as holy as possible and not interact with the world. No, Paul says we, we need to interact with the world. There's this middle space where we become all things to all men, not in sinful ways, but in any way that we can where we build bridges and say, okay, we agree on this. We disagree about this, but we agree on this. We can honor each other, and we can then make a stand for what is true and good and beautiful. And so, again, practical application, love true and beautiful things where you see it, celebrate it, but be discerning and take it under the lordship of Christ. If you're an artist, art for the glory of God, right? 
Most of us are not artists, so what does that leave us with? That means be good neighbors, right? We celebrate beauty. We're artists and just loving our family well, having people over for supper, right? Doing a good job at work, working hard, work harder than everybody else in your office, and people are going to be like, that's, that's beautiful. Like, I didn't really believe in Jesus before, but there's something I can't argue with in the way that they work, in the way that they live. That's the apologetic of beauty. Okay, we'll wrap up here. Um, it's this idea of making a stand. And as I said at the very beginning, we don't make a stand as the police or soldiers do. Many of you are soldiers. We, we thank you. We honor you for your work. But that's a different sphere, right? That's a different sphere of governance that God has given us. With the gospel, we don't share the gospel at the point of a sword. We don't share the gospel with guns. We share the gospel by serving others and sacrificing for others, by proclaiming the word. That's how we move forward. That's how we make a stand in the Lord and in the gospel. And so Acts chapter 4 is a great picture of this. The disciples first start uh, following Jesus, and they're told by the Jewish leaders, like, hey, you can't, you can't do this. You can't talk about Jesus. You've got to stop healing people, and you've got to stop preaching Jesus. And, and this is the respond of the disciples. Acts chapter 4, 19, Peter and John said, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him, you be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. As Christians, we're going to make a stand in our faithfulness to Jesus. We're not making a stand fighting, hurting each other physically. We're making a stand by giving of ourselves and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to trust Jesus, and I'm going to do what he says. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. And as you call us to make a stand on truth and on the gospel and on your lordship, we pray that you would teach us to do that in a winsome way where we absolutely would not compromise in a world where we see people compromising left and right, throwing away their faith. God, help us to be faithful to you, but Lord, also help us, help us to be joyful about it. Help us to be united with each other. Help us to stand for beauty, to celebrate the good and the true and the beautiful, to, to be winsome and to glorify you in our work and in our play. Most of all, help us to keep speaking of you and what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.